if you would read along with me again, starting in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed into the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deed and doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength into your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pains have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. And now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. You are still, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Yahweh, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your power, Lord. We are in awe of your might, we are in awe, Lord, of your holiness, your glory, Lord, we're in awe of your goodness and love. God, as we continue through the book of Exodus and you reveal your name to us, Lord, as we study and we see how awesome you truly are, Lord, I pray that our hearts is, are full of, of love and passion to the point that that song overflows out of our lips, Lord. That the fear of the Lord, the fear of you, Lord, would bring a joy-filled praise. God, be with us this morning as we look through this song, this song written by Moses, sung by the Israelites, as they've just witnessed your awesome display of power, Lord. God, give us that same awe this morning, who you are. In your son's name, amen. 
Last week we went through the narrative of the, the Red Sea crossing, and we really looked at three pretty major themes in, in, in the, the Red Sea crossing. And these three themes, the first one was Moses as mediator, he, uh, a type of Christ. And, and we'll see these three themes, and Moses being a mediator, get developed further as the book of Exodus continues. The second theme we looked at was Israel as a new creation, really kind of a new Adam. God, once again is leading Israel to a place where he will dwell with them, like in the garden. And finally, we spent time looking at the theme of Yahweh, a God to be feared. This last theme really is the context of chapter 15. And if you didn't hear the sermon last week, we spent some time on this idea of the fear of the Lord. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. If you you have questions about that, we will be talking about that as we keep going through the book of Exodus. But, but the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh is really the context of this song that's being sung in chapter 15. Let me just show you the, the, the last two verses of chapter 14. If you would look at them, chapter 14, verse 30 says this, thus The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then the very first, the very next verse, the very first verse of chapter 15, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. It's clear in these three verses that the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, produced song. It caused Israel to sing. It caused Israel to sing a joy-filled praise to Yahweh. Again, Exodus 15, 1 through 18 is a song. It's often called the Song of Moses. There's a couple songs that Moses has written out in the Pentateuch, and this is one of them. Fear of the Lord, in other words, caused Moses, it moved Moses and and Israel to sing. And this is obvious, again, in how this song starts. Verse 31 of chapter 14. So the people feared the Lord. And then the very next verse, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. This is also obvious, not just in the beginning. It's obvious right in the middle of the song itself. And let me kind of show you what I mean. There, there's five parts to this song. There's an introduction, that's verses 1 through 3. There's this, this reaccount or, of Yahweh's past victory in, in the Red Sea, that's verses 4 through 10. And then, then right in the middle, there's this praise to the glory of Yahweh, that's verses 11 and 12. Then after that, there's Yahweh's future victory, predicting future victory. That's 13 through 16, and finally a conclusion, meaning right in the middle of this song, and in Hebrew, it's the exact middle of this song, is verse 11 and 12, praise to the glory of God, praise to the glory of Yahweh. Now, normally in Hebrew poetry, and even in Hebrew narrative, a lot of the times, this is different than than Western way of telling stories in, in our way of telling stories, usually the main point is right at the end, the conclusion. But in, in, in Hebraic way of writing, especially poetry and song, the meaning or the most important part is often found right in the middle of the song. 
Look at verses 11 and 12. This is the exact middle of the song. It says this, and everything's building up to this on both ends of this song. It says this, that the Israelites are singing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and wonders, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Now let me ask this question. Guess what word awesome is in Hebrew? Fear. In fact, it's the same exact Hebrew word used in Exodus 14, verse 31. So the people feared the Lord and they believed. Again, let me just read verse 11 with that translation, which would be appropriate. It would be like this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome or fearful in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That would be appropriate translation, fearful. Right? The center of this psalm, in other words, is the fear of the Lord. Right? It's the focal point of the whole song that's written out. It's the it's reason why Israel is singing. The fear of the Lord has caused passionate, joy-filled song and praise. You know, I've been kind of studying a lot on the fear of the Lord lately, just because I know this theme is coming through the book of Exodus. And there's one book that really has stood out to me as I've been reading about the fear of the Lord. And it was written by Michael Reeves, who's a theologian. In fact, he's the president of Union School of Theology in Britain. He's written just a really great book on the fear of the Lord, and it's called Rejoice and Tremble. I I highly recommend it. Let me just read a portion of this book. I think it's helpful. He writes this. The fear of God as a strong biblical theme thus stands as a superb theological guard dog. It stops us from thinking that we are made for either passionless performance or a detached knowledge of abstract truths. Let me just flesh this out a little bit. There's two temptations I think Christians have, especially Christians that take the Bible seriously. There's two temptations that are that are are bad things. One of them is a, a pa- passionless performance, a passionless religion. It's just religion without, without anything that's motivating it, for, without love. Right? It's passionless. It's, it's really just legalism. Legalism is passionless performance. It's, I only obey because it's my duty to obey. No other motive deeper than that. There's no joy or passion in serving God. There's no passionate love of God motivating obedience. It's passionless obedience. The second temptation, I think, for people that that really take Scripture seriously is a detached knowledge of abstract truths. In other words, there's this temptation of knowing a lot of theology or knowing the Bible extremely well, but... Not knowing God in an intimate relationship, not loving God. Passionate performance or passionless performance and a detached knowledge of abstract truth really characterizes the Pharisees. Think about it. Legalism, I mean, they, they obeyed, but not out of love for God, and they knew Scripture extremely well. But we are called to a passionate relationship. 
You know, I asked this last week and I asked this question a lot because it's an important question to ask. What is the greatest commandment in Scripture? You can answer out loud. You know what it's not? It's not obey God. It's deeper than that. It's the motivation to obey God, love. The love of God should motivate us to want to obey him and trust him and do what he asks us to do. Back Matthew 22, verse 37, of course, says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You know what that is? That's passion. We are called to love the Lord God. Godly fear is connected to obedience and knowledge. Don't get me wrong. But also love and passion for God. Michael Reeves continues. He says this, the fear of the Lord backs us into the acknowledgement that we are made to know God in such a way that our hearts tremble at his beauty and splendor. That we are remade at, a deepest, at the deepest level. It shows us that entering uh, the life of Christ involves a transformation of our very affections, our very own affections, so that we begin actually to despise, not merely renounce, but to despise the sins we once cherish and to treasure God, the God we once abhorred. The fear of the Lord draws us to God, and we saw that with Israel. It drew Israel toward belief and joy and, and to God. This is why singing is such an appropriate expression of a, a right godly fear. Listen to what Psalm 96 says. Psalm 96 verse 1 says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Michael Reeves continues, he says, In fact, the fear of the Lord is the reason Christianity is the most song-filled of all religions. Have you ever thought about that? The most song-filled of all religions. Have you ever wondered why Christians sing so much? (laughs) More than any other religion. I mean, the greatest works of art in Western civilization, music, a Christian base. Think of the Messiah. The answer is the fear of the Lord. It's the reason why, from how Christians worship together to how they stream music, they're always looking to make melody about their faith. Christians instinctively want to sing to express the affections behind the words of praise, their words of praise, knowing that words spoken flatly will not do in worship of this God. In Exodus 15, this is after the Red Sea crossing, overwhelmed with the fear of the Lord, Moses and the people sing. That's the first instinct they have is to sing. And they sing, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearful in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Their instinct was to sing. So let's look at the song this morning 
And I just want to walk through it and explain the different parts of it. There's really, again, I, I mentioned earlier that there's five parts to this song. There's an introduction. There's Yahweh's past victory and then right in the middle, the glory of Yahweh on display. Then there's Yahweh's future victory looking forward and finally a conclusion. So let's just walk verse by verse through this song. Let's start with the introduction. Verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, this is where the song begins, I will sing to the Lord. Now, I think we all know this by now, but capital L-O-R-D just means that this is God's name, Yahweh. I will sing to Yahweh, in other words. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his riders, he has thrown into the sea. Now, the song, as we're going to see, and this is the introduction, is mostly about God's awesome display of power that Israel just witnessed, right? The Red Sea. Israel's deliverance from an evil nation. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. There's something really interesting about verse 2. Verse 2 starts with the Lord. Again, capital L-O-R-D, referring to God's name. Right? This indicates the name of the Lord, name of God. But in Hebrew, it's not Yahweh. It's actually just Yah. Yah is my strength and my song. That's how it's, what it is. Yah is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I'll praise him. It's, it's a shorter version of Yahweh, Yah. It's kind of like Nathan and then calling me Nate, right? It's just a shorter way of saying Nathan. It's a lazy way of saying Nathan, right? Nate. That was a joke. Not a funny one. I'll keep the jokes. Sorry. Yah is a shorter way of saying Yahweh. And it's only used 26 times in the Old Testament, which may sound like a lot, 26 times. But think about this. Yahweh in the Old Testament is used well over 6,000 times. So Yah, the shorter version of Yahweh only being used 26 times is really not very much at all in the Old Testament. There's a lot of words in the Old Testament. It's used two times in Exodus, four times in Isaiah and 20 times in the song, Psalms. And the two times in Exodus and the four times in Isaiah are mostly songs within itself, meaning this word is mostly used in poetry and song. And it's probably because of the cadence and structure of the poetry. Cadence is really important in Hebrew poetry and Yahweh being two different syllables doesn't fit as well in some songs as just Yah does. And that's probably why they use the word Yah. Let me just give you an example. In Isaiah 12, verse 2, this is a song to the Lord of poetry. It says this, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. That's a very similar the song to the song Moses sang in Exodus 15. But in Hebrew, where it says, The Lord God in Hebrew, it's really God's name twice, a short version and a longer version. It's Yah, Yahweh. Yah, Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And that's a poetic way of, of writing this out. Why is this all important? Well, it's because God's full name, Yahweh, I think it's interesting, and we're going to talk about this more next week, I'm pretty sure. God's full name, Yahweh, is not used once in the New Testament. I don't know if you realize that. 
for how important God's name is in the Old Testament, used over and over and over again, over 6,000 times, it's not used once in the New Testament, but Yah is used four times in the New Testament. Four times, and it's part of a word, hallelujah, which means praise the Lord or better praise Yahweh or even better praise Yah. It's a shorter version of Yahweh, hallelujah, used four times in the New Testament. It's all in Revelation in one chapter 19, all to the praise of God. Let me just read them. These different, these four times it's used. Revelation 19, verse 1 says this After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven crying out. And this is a song, this is praise. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This is, this is very similar to Exodus 15. This is a song. This is a praising of God for deliverance from an evil enemy. And it keeps going. Verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And then verse six, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunders crying out right, in song and praise. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. They are praising God's name for his salvation and deliverance. Again, very similar to Exodus chapter 15. And it's actually interesting, if you read through Revelation, there's a point, Revelation chapter 15, where, where God's people, after they are delivered from their enemies, sing the song of Moses. They actually sing Exodus 15 in praise of Yah, Yahweh. God is a God who saves. He's a God who redeems. And he's a God that promotes and causes joy-filled song. That's why we sing. Again, look at Exodus 15, verse 2. Yah is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Then verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Again, we should know this by now, but in Exodus, one of the, the overarching themes, the most important theme in, in the whole book of Exodus is that God is revealing his name. Look what, it, look what Israel is singing in verse 3. Yahweh, right, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Now, remember the burning bush, and this is important to get the context of why they sing this in verse 3. In Exodus 3.13, this is a burning bush. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. It could be translated, I will be who I will be, by the way. 
really believe this is God saying, I'm about to show you, Moses, who I am. I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Right, Israel, you're about to see who I am. Verse 15, God said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. In other words, God is going to reveal his name to Israel. What it means that he is Yahweh. Now look at verse three of the song, right? This is after the plagues, after the parting of the Red Sea, after the destruction of Pharaoh's army. What does Israel say about Yahweh? Verse three. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Now, this is going to be extremely important as we continue in the narrative of Exodus. Israel knows God's name, Yahweh, now. And what do they say about him? Yahweh is a man of war. Now, this is not saying that Yahweh is a man. It's a, it's a term meaning he's a mighty warrior. Yahweh is a mighty warrior who wars against evil. Yahweh, in other words, will judge and destroy evil. Yahweh is holy. This is what they're saying. This is what they've witnessed. God's judgment on an evil nation, which leads to the second part of this song, right? The the evidence of this, what, what God has done, Yahweh's past victory, what they just witnessed. Look at verse four. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts, he cast into the sea, And his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Last week I said that the sea, right, the Red Sea is the climax of the first part of Exodus, the climax of the judgment on Egypt. Remember, sea in Scripture really represents often death and judgment. People were terrified of the sea in antiquity because it was dangerous to go across the sea but but in in scripture it's often a, a analogy of death and judgment well look at verse two the sea is referred to or not verse two verse four and five the sea is referred to four times in these two verses pharaoh's chariot and his host he cast into the sea that's death and judgment right and his chosen officers sunk into the red sea The floods, just like the judgment of the flood, the floods covered them and they went down into the depths like a stone. The sea was the final judgment on Egypt and it was a fitting end to an evil nation. Let's keep going. Verse six, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy in the greatness of your majesty. You overthrow your adversaries, you sin You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. Now, verse 6 and verse 7, and really verse 6 through verse 10, there's a shift that happens in the verse 4 through 5, the two verses before this, the the Israelites are describing what Yahweh has done. They're reaccounting history, what they just witnessed. In verses 6 through 10, the people start singing directly to God himself. Look at the personal pronouns in verse six. It says, your right hand. And he says it again, your right hand. And he says, your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury. They're singing to God directly. Israel is praising God 
and that the song is for him, for what he has done. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the water is piled up. Now, that's an interesting phrase, at the blast of your nostrils. What's this, this mean? Well, verse 8, when you go through the song, seems to parallel with verse 10. Look at what verse 10 says. The very first part, verse 10 says, you blew. Like you breathed, you blew. It's the same thing as the blast of your nostrils. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. I think this is referring to the, the east wind that we saw in the chapter 14, the east wind that came and separated the waters. The wind came from God, in other words. Again, verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, that's where the wind came from. At the blast of your nostrils, the water, waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps um, congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My, my hand shall destroy them. Hope you're seeing the self-absorbed, self-focus of the enemy here. Did you see it? In this one verse, the enemy, which is probably Pharaoh and Egypt, but Pharaoh is a representative of Egypt, so really this is Pharaoh. In this one verse, he refers to himself six different times. I mean, that's just impressive. Listen to it. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoils. My desire shall have its full of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. This is meant to be in direct conflict with the will of God. We're seeing the will of Pharaoh in direct conflict with the will of God. In fact, I believe this is in direct conflict of the seven I wills in chapter six. We spent a lot of time in chapter six. This is another song or, or a poem that was written for Israel. This is God speaking. In chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, this is what God says. There shall, or say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Now compare that to Exodus 15, verse 9. Listen again. The enemy says, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoils. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. That's direct conflict of wills, Pharaoh's will and God's will, Yahweh's will. Yahweh's will and Pharaoh's will are in conflict in these two passages. The question in the whole first part of Exodus is really this question that's set up, who is truly sovereign over the people of Israel? Who is truly king over the people of Israel? Who truly owns Israel? The people of Israel, well, look at verse 10. You blew with your wind. You know what that's saying? You breathed on Egypt. You merely blew. It's like someone blowing out a candle. 
You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sunk like lead in the mighty waters. In other words, Egypt had no chance. The most powerful army in the world at that time, the most powerful man in the world was destroyed by Yahweh merely by him breathing on him. Yahweh is sovereign, not Pharaoh. There's another comparison I want to point out, though, that I think is important in this song. Again, Pharaoh and Egypt completely self-absorbed, completely self-focused, to the point of insanity as you go through the passage, and stupidity. They should never have chased after Israel. They should have known by then, right? You see this, I will, I will, I will, right? I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the, the spoils, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them, right? Self-focus, self-worship, really. But listen to the hearts of God's people. That's, that's Egypt. This is Israel. Verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh. Right? It's almost like, like Pharaoh and Egypt were, were singing to themselves. But Israel and Moses sang this song to Yahweh. I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Moses and the people were were focused on God alone. Listen, godly fear, like true godly fear, not sinful fear, but if you're saved and you're a part of of the family of God and and God's your father and you have a godly fear, a healthy, joy-filled awe and fear of the Lord, it will not only just make you sing, right? I will sing to the Lord, but it will also make you completely forget yourself. You're so focused on God, you'll forget you. It'll make you forget your circumstances. It'll make you forget other fears because they'll just fade compared to the fear of the Lord. The stresses of life will just fade. Again, I, I just really believe Psalms 23. I've been thinking about that Psalm for a long time. God got a table for David in the presence of his enemies. And his cup overflows. There's joy filled even though there's danger all around him. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will not fear. Why? Because David feared God. And he forgot himself. He forgot his circumstances. In fact, I just did a funeral this week and went through Psalm 139. And it's like, I think it's one of the most misunderstood Psalms in all of the Psalter because the very end, you just like, I don't know what to do with this. This beautiful psalm, praising God, praising God, praising God. And you get to the end, and David's like, kill my enemies. And you're like, what's going on here? I think the end is to tell us that David, his life is on the line. His enemies are at the door, uh, and and he's about to die if God doesn't do something. And and he forgets about it because he starts talking about God. (laughs) He starts praising God through the whole psalm, and he's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the enemies. I forgot about them. 
forgot about himself. In fact, one of Moses' greatest problems in chapters 3 through 6 was that he was self-focused. Chapter 7 on, he was God-focused. God chapters 3 through 6, he, he's self-focused. And that was one of his greatest problems. Remember Exodus 4.10. This is at, after the burning bush, after, after God called Moses to go. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or, or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. What was Moses' problem? You know, same exact as our problems. He was self-focused. And how did God respond? Let me just say what he didn't say, and, and I know I say this over and over and over again. But when, when, when someone comes to us and is self, what's the right word? Degrading, or what's the word for it? Where they're just putting themselves down over and over and over again. Self, what is it? Deprecating, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. I was going to say something different, I'm glad I didn't say it. Um, when someone is like that, what's our first instinct? Is to, to start praising them, right? Say, oh no, you're not. Come on, you're better than that. You know what you're doing when you do that? You're just feeding into the problem. What's that person's problem? They're self-focused. They're only looking at themselves. Okay, so let me say what God doesn't say to Moses when he says, I'm slow of speech. I, I, I don't speak well, God. He, do, he doesn't say this. Moses, you can do this. Moses, don't be so hard on yourself. Moses, you're not that slow of speech. I mean, you, you can speak. Moses, you need to believe in yourself. That's not what God says. Listen to what he says. This is verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Moses, who made you this way, in other words? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? You're exactly the way I wanted you to be, Moses. In fact, in Numbers, it says that Moses was the most humble man that ever was. I think God directed Moses' life so it would cause humility in his life. I do. Is it not I, the Lord, that did this? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God is saying, Moses, get your eyes off yourself. Look at me. I'll be with you. We need to be pointing people to God, not right back at themselves. You know what's interesting about this song in Exodus 15? For how much God used Moses, and, and Moses was in a very privileged position. We talked about this last week. In fact, at the end of chapter 14, it, 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 it almost seems it doesn't, but it almost seems like God, they equate Moses with God. What's it say? It says that the, the Israelites feared the Lord and they believed God and his servant Moses, right? Moses has a super high position and it's because he's a type of Christ. He, he directly points us to Christ. What's interesting about chapter 15 is Moses' name is not mentioned once. He's not even alluded to. The whole song is about Yahweh. 
Nothing about Moses. Moses has completely forgotten himself as he wrote this song. His focus was on God, his glory, his greatness, his awesomeness. You know, when we do that, we find joy. We find peace. We stop looking at ourselves and look at God. Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my, my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The fear of the Lord right, gets our focus off ourselves and directs it towards God and his glory, which brings us to the third part of this song, the glory of Yahweh on display. Right, right in the middle, the center of the song in, in Hebrew, the exact middle, meaning the focal point, everything builds up to these two verses. And it's simple. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In other words, God has revealed his name to the Israelites. Right? In the judgment of, of Egypt and in the redemption of Israel. And Israel's response, again, verse 11, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearful in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Just listen to Psalm 106. Let me just read this. This is a reaccount or a, a retelling of the Red Sea crossing. Verse 9 says this, He, this is God, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the depth or deep as though as a a desert. So he saved them from the hand of their foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then, that's important, then they believed his words. They sang his praise. In other words, the revelation of God's name, revelation of the character of God, his nature, who he is, produced belief in the Israelites, and it caused them to sing. And we see this again in Exodus 14, 31, where it says, Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed, and then they sang. It's this belief that we see in the second half of this song. It's a belief that that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. And that leads us to the fourth part of this song, which is Yahweh's future victory. Yahweh's future victory. Verse 13 starts, it says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. That word holy abode is important. The NASB has holy habit, uh, habitation. The Hebrew re- word literally means like stopping place. You're going somewhere and you stop and you, you rest. It's a stopping place or I think even better, dwelling place. It's where you stop and dwell. It could be translated, you have guided them, Israel, by your strength to your holy dwelling. Verse 14, the peoples have heard and they tremble. Now, the peoples is plural, meaning many different people groups. Who are these people? Well, verse 2 tells us the peoples have heard and they tremble. Pangs have 
sees the inhabitants of Philistia, which that's the, the Philistines, verse 15. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. These are all the nations Israel will face in war in the future here. On their journey to the promised land and in the promised land, they'll face these nations. There's two things I want to point out about this verse that I think are important. The first one is this. Remember why Israel was led to the Red Sea in the first place. Remember back a few Sundays ago in Exodus 13, 17, it says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Although that was near, in other words, that was the most direct way to the promised land, but God didn't lead them that way. It says this, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God knew that the Israelites' faith was weak. So he took them to the Red Sea where they were stuck and performed this awesome miracle in front of them. Now listen to Israel after the Red Sea, verse 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Israelites are singing about how the Philistines are terrified of them. Their faith, in other words, is growing. Don't get me wrong. A lot of ups and downs with the Israelites. In fact, very next paragraph in Exodus 15, there's a down. But in this moment, (laughs) we see faith. Act Hebrews 11 talks about the faith of the Israelites going through the Red Sea. They had faith. Their faith has grown because God put them in this tough circumstance and brought them through on the other side. Thankful for Ross's sermon, in James 2, talking about trials. When you talk about a trial, you have death on the one side, death on the other side. <laughs> and God brings you through this trial and the, the Red Sea crushes your enemy. And what's it produce? joy-filled song. Their faith has grown. The second thing I want to point out, though, is the peoples of these lands are terrified. Look at verse 14. The peoples have heard, and they tremble. They're terrified. This is a simple fear. It's not the godly fear of uh, the Israelites had. It's It's a trembling fear of judgment and destruction by God. Turn with me, in fact, to Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. We'll be back in 15, so leave something there. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. It's a familiar story for most of us. It's the story of Rahab and the Jewish spies. Just to give you the context, this is years and years after the Red Sea crossing and the song that we see in chapter 15. The Israelites are about to enter into the promised land, but they have to conquer the promised land and the people in the promised land, namely the Canaanites. And this is the spies going out and checking out the land. Verse 8, before the men laid down, these are the Jewish spies, she, this is Rahab, who is hiding them in faith. She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, and capital L-O-R-D, so that means, and this is important, this, this pagan prostitute says this, I know that Yahweh, she uses the name of God, she knows Yahweh. I know that Yahweh has given you the land, 
and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land, this is all the Canaanites, melt away before you. And why are the Canaanites so afraid? Well, verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord, how Yahweh dried up the waters at the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Everyone's heard about the Red Sea. Look at verse 11. And as soon as we, this is the Canaanites, heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's pretty amazing coming from a pagan. She knows who God is, and she says he's the one true God in heavens and earth. And why? Because of the revelation of God's name in Egypt. The 12 plagues, the the parting of the Red Sea. Remember, God is revealing his name. He's revealing his name to, to Moses. He's revealing his name to Pharaoh. He's revealing his name to to Egypt. He's revealing his name to Israel, but he's also revealing his name to all the surrounding countries that are paying attention. And they know about Yahweh. Again, verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, the implication of this is super important. One of the the strongest and is one of the arguments used against Christianity over and over and over again is found in the Old Testament that God used Israel to wipe out the Canaanites. And the question is, how could a good God just wipe out a whole nation? Well, it's important to know a couple things. First, the Canaanites were weren't innocent. In fact, they're an evil nation. And I don't even want to get into that this morning. But the second thing is this. God had revealed his name to the Canaanites in grace. In fact, Rahab shows us that any Canaanite that would repent and turn to Yahweh would be saved. They knew who Yahweh was. Rahab proves it. When they were fighting against God's people, in other words, they weren't ignorant. Just like the Egyptians, they weren't just fighting Israel. They were rebelling against God, against Yahweh. They were fighting against Yahweh. Now turn back to Exodus 15, verse 15. Exodus 15, 15 says, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the land of Moab. And listen to this. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. It's exactly what Rahab said in Joshua. This is what she said. I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And all the inhabitants of the land, that's all the Canaanites, melt away before you. Verse 16, it keeps going. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. In other words, whom you have redeemed and bought out of slavery. This leads finally to the conclusion of this song. Verse 17, you will bring them, that's Israel, in and plant them 
on your mountain, your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Now, this is talking about the promised land. Again, this is predicting the future here, what's going to happen. And this is the the conclusion of this song. It says, you will, this is going to happen. You will bring them in and plant them. That's a promised land. This is Israel believing God. You're going to plant them in this promised land, this new Eden, this new garden. On your own mountain, this is not Mount uh, uh, Sinai. This is talking about Mount Zion. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, that's the temple. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. Again, that's God's dwelling. God will once again dwell with his people in the promised land. It's a new Eden, a new garden where God will once again dwell with man. He's reversing the curse. This is where Israel is going. Now, there's something interesting in verse 17 I want to point out, and maybe you caught it as I was reading through it. Let me read it again. You, that's God, you will bring them, Israel, of course, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord. That's lowercase L-O-R-D. Meaning that's Adonai, which your hands have established. It's the only place we in this song that we see the word Adonai used for God. Everywhere else is Yahweh, or God in a generic way of saying God. But Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord, and it, it means something very similar to the way we use the word Lord. Right? Someone in authority, or someone who is sovereign over something else. He's the Lord of something. In other words, this is saying Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is sovereign over his people. It's a declaration that Yahweh is sovereign over Israel, and of course, not Pharaoh, which fits really well with the last line, verse 18, the Lord, Yahweh, will reign forever and ever. Right? Yahweh is king over his people. And, and really, not just his people. This, this speaks of God's eternal, universal kingship over everything. Psalm 145, 13 says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generation. Again, verse 18, the Lord will reign. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. And that's the end of this psalm, song. The praise of God as universal king. The praise of his kingship over everything. Israel, just picture this, standing on the other side of the Red Sea, singing this song to God. I mean, what else could they do after what they just witnessed? But sing. Verse 19, let me just read, gives you the kind of the recap of of the context of the psalm, verse 19 says, For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. And the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And now look at verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron. Now, Miriam, the first time we see her name in Exodus, is Moses and Aaron's sister. She, most likely, unless Moses had a couple sisters, but that's not implied here. So she is the one that helped save Moses' life in Exodus chapter 1. The first time we see her name, it's Miriam. And verse 20 tells us that she was a prophetess, a female prophet. Look at verse 20 again. It says, Then Miriam, 
the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, she took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing and Miriam sang to them. Now, the them is masculine, so the implication here is that all the women sang the song of Moses back to the men. Because they first two lines here is from the song of Moses sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse or the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea and I'm guessing the implication here is that they sang the whole song back and forth to each other in other words just can you picture this it's this joy filled moment where Israel is finally free 400 years of slavery The threat of the enemy is destroyed. They're on the other side of the Red Sea, free. The fear of the Lord produces this joy-filled time of singing to each other, back and forth, and to God. They just witness an awesome display of God's power and holiness, and the fear of the Lord caused Israel to tremble in joy and sing praises to Yahweh. Which makes me want to just end where we started. Let me just read the quote from Michael Reeves one more time. He says this, The fear of the Lord is the reason Christianity is the most song-filled of all religions. It's the reason why Christians are always looking to make melody about their faith. Christians instinctively want to sing to express their affections behind their words of praise, knowing that words spoken flatly will not do in worship of this God. Right? We sing, we worship an awesome God. And you know what's awesome? We especially sing this time of year. We sing carols and hymns that this awesome God came as a baby and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins, that we may be uh, freed from slavery, the slavery of sin, and have freedom and worship him. That's what we do every time we come together as a church and sing praises to him. Let's do that now. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, What else can we do but sing? It's so appropriate to praise and worship you, Lord, by by singing melodies and truths, Lord, that we find in your word. God, I I just thank you for this time of year, Lord, uh, that we sing about your son who, who came to dwell with us, to be a part of us, to be Emmanuel, God with us. God, it's appropriate that we sing. Lord, I pray that we don't have a passionless religion, Lord, here at Country Oaks, that that we're full of passion and love, not just for each other, Lord. I pray for that, but love of you. That our obedience is, is always driven because we love you so much, that we are in awe of you, that we fear you. I pray that we're like the Israelites, that we have that same feeling on the other side of the Red Sea where song is just so natural because we are so enthralled with you. Be with us as we sing this praise to you in your son's name. Amen.